Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're going to uh, talk about speech. We have the, the big sort of headquarters of <clears throat> the discussion of, of proper speech. Um, and not speaking Lushan Hara, which is the, the, the misuse of speech, or, or the other side, speaking Lushan Tov, which is, which is um, good speech, proper speech. Um, the, the headquarters for, for this topic really in, in the Torah is, is the parshas of um, Tazria and Mitzorah. And so it's, it's, a, it's appropriate to, to discuss these things now. Um, now, you know, we have to sort of sensitize ourselves to, to what just the whole the concept of saying something proper or saying something improper the, the amount of power that we have with, with, with our, our speech. And um, what, I think one of the first issues, if we want to begin to understand, like, you know, in a practical way, how we should approach it in our own lives in terms of the, um, the, the effort of uh, self-control that we should try to master or exercise, um, it's so deceptive because I think that um, we take for granted just just talking, it's just talking, whatever it is. You see, there, there are certain, I, don't, I, I want to use the word tricks, but, but it's not really the, the, the right word. Let's say illusions. There are certain illusions that certain things are either common or not dangerous or whatever it is, where the opposite is massively true. And there's certain things that we take for granted because of familiarity, but the reality is is that it's not one 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 dare not become overly familiar with certain things because we become the we we become the you know the the the, the victims if you will of becoming overly familiar with certain things, like um, you know, I was just thinking just to kind of say something a little bit out there, but just to kind of get us thinking. You know, we take, we take the floor that we're standing on for granted. Of course there's a floor. <laughs> like, why wouldn't there be a floor? And yet, why should there be a floor? Why, why shouldn't we just fall eternally, right? Or why should there be gravity at all? Why should the table that you're sitting in front of, right, remain on the floor. Why shouldn't it be floating around the room and like just go up to the tallest buildings, like crash through the ceiling? Like there, there's certain, there's certain things that we just sort of take for granted automatically. And yet if we do that, we sort of anesthetize ourselves to sort of the bizarreness or the amazingness of the reality that we live in. And we can't really afford to do that. Now, one of these things, one of these absolutely critical elements is the fact that we can speak at all. Speech itself is, is phenomenal. It's, it's not normal. And if you want to see what I mean by that, look at how many different creatures there are in the world. How many species there are in the world. You know, just if you just want to talk about on the, you know, the, the single cell level, and, and they're discovering new species all the time. I mean, here we are in the 21st century, and if you keep up with the news, they, they're still discovering new species. And they haven't even begun to look underwater, deep underwater, where there are dozens or hundreds or maybe thousands of species. 
right, that we don't know about. And I'm talking about from everything from the, the really, you know, um, uh, single cell level to, to larger fish and things like that. So, so the point is, with this vast amount of creatures in the world, we're the only ones who have this ability to speak. That's, again, this is something that seems so utterly basic and normal to us, but to our own detriments. You know, it's, 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 it's the most amazing thing in the world that we can talk at all. This is the most amazing thing in the world. Now, it becomes even more amazing when you realize that our tradition is, is that God spoke the world into creation. Or as we've said many times, he sang the world into creation. But either way, it was the power of speech that, that, that correlated with creation. Now again, we know God is not, a, is not corporal. He doesn't have a body. He doesn't have a mouth to speak. But yet, the sages put it in these terms in order for us to, to grasp something that's just beyond, but also to appreciate the idea that one of the aspects of us being created, B'Tselem Elohim, in the image of God, is that there are certain parallels that we have with God. For instance, free choice. Amazing, amazing parallel. You know? But also speech, an amazing parallel. And now let's go into this a little bit more. Again, we're just trying to understand before we even discuss the idea of controlling our speech or mastering our speech, just the idea of speech as the most unbelievable, bizarre, amazing, unique concept that we have, right? Let's just appreciate what it is first. So, so, so what does it mean for us to create with speech? And this starts to get actually very, very deep, you know? Um, so it says, God created the world through speaking, right? Baruch Shamar Alam. Right? God spoke and, 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 and the world came into being. Um, so, so let's just begin with one idea and we're going to go deeper. And we, we've discussed this before, but it's very important to understand because this is really one of the foundations of understanding our own power of speech. You see, through speech, you create perception. And through perception new realities come into being. All right, and I'm going to unpack that, okay? But let's, let's, let's figure out what that means. You see, if I, if I tell you something, or if you tell someone else some, something about someone else, right? Now they're going to look at that thing or that person according to what you've said. And now they live in another world. They live in a new world. You've created a new world for them. Because the world that they used to live in was, this is a nice guy. <laughs> and now they inhabit a new world where that's not a nice guy. And I have to stay away from that person and not be friends with them. That is actually a new world that you've created through speech. That's not a small thing. That's not a small thing. You know, it says that Hashem created and destroyed many worlds before he created this one. Now, 
Now, without going into the depths of that, right? Without going into the depths of that, think of all the worlds that are being created and destroyed through our speech every single day. Thousands, millions, billions worldwide, trillions of worlds are created and destroyed every single day. Can you imagine? Now, you know, they say there's no, no, nothing as powerful. This is not a, a, a Torah quote, but I think there's truth to it. We say that the nations of the world have wisdom, so we have to learn from, from the wisdom of the nations of the world. That there's no, nothing so powerful as an idea whose time has come. Has you ever, ever heard that before? It's a very famous quote. There's nothing so powerful as an idea whose time has come. What does that mean exactly? See, like you talk about something like, um, you know, the, 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 the communist revu- revolution, right? For instance, right? You see, and, and that flipped over an entire empire, right? And then turned into a, a reign of terror, basically, for decades, which influenced hundreds of millions of people, okay? So, so... So the idea is, is that if you can provide a narrative for people, meaning to say, if you could, if you could speak out an idea which is an organizational principle, you can actually, with your speech, you can change the entire world, right? You can create a revolution. You see... Never before have the gates been more open, in my opinion. And, and this is true. When, remember, whenever there's a spiritual opportunity, there's always the counterbalance. There's also the possibility for the negative side of this as well. Okay? But I believe that because of the zeitgeist, because of the sort of the personality of the times today, there's never been a greater opportunity for the Torah message to, to come through. And, and let me tell you what I mean by that. And again, this is all under the category of um, there's nothing so powerful as an idea whose time has come. And again, the power and the enormity of speech. You see, we live in this era right now of what they call big data. Big data means that there's an overwhelming amount of information, an overwhelming amount of information that's available to everyone. I mean, if you just think about it for a moment, most of us, in our pockets, we have a, a smartphone. In your pocket, you have the ability in seconds to access all of the wisdom and the history of human civilization in seconds. In your pocket, in seconds. This is wild. This is wild, right? Now, this has never been before. So, so, so what are people doing with all of this data? They, they don't know what to do with all this data. People now, more than ever, need large organizational principles or narratives to be able to make a through line with all of this data. So the most compelling narrative of creation, or let me put it another way, the truth, the truth, if the truth has never had a more ripe opportunity to be spoken, I'm using that word deliberately, to be spoken 
and to be received and to have its impact on humanity than now. So again, understand that worlds are created and destroyed and created through speech. This is, this is, this is what happens. And writing is, is just written speech, right? It's just another form of speech. You know, so, so now I'll tell you something. Something I think very deep. If you look at the beginning of Parshas Mitzorah, or, or rather Tazria, they make an interesting connection. Right? It's going to go on to talk about um, a person who has saras, which was a physical ailment, which was um, born from a spiritual malady. Meaning to say, because someone was spiritually imbalanced through their misuse of speech, it became um, materialized or physicalized on their body. That's saras. It's, it's translated as leprosy, but it's not, it wasn't leprosy. It's a, it's a different ailment, but it can be compared to leprosy on some level. But it wasn't leprosy. And we, they say we don't have it today. You know? But this was something that was really rooted in, 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 in the world for a period of time. Okay. And the reason why they say we don't have it today is actually kind of heartbreaking because we've fallen so low that we're, we're not even available to this type of... See, you know, you know, if you hang out with like holy people and you, you're very conscious about what you say and what you don't say, and then around other people, if you're like, you know, on the subway, maybe you'll speak a little more loosely, right? So it's sort of like, we don't, we're not even, we don't even, we're so desensitized at this point in terms of the, the, the rolling out of the generations that we don't, we don't even have that level of sensitivity anymore. But we, we must regain it. That's the point. We have to regain. We have to regain it. Because by regaining it, that will be a key to the redemption of the world. Because when we master our speech, again, we're generating new worlds all of the time. And that's like this amazing filter system. Like imagine a filter in a pool or something like that. It's kind of cleaning out the pool or a person's kidneys, which are constantly cleaning out their blood and their body. You know, if you're speaking properly, you're constantly purifying the world in terms of the creation that you're putting out into the world. You're lifting it up higher and higher and higher and you're refining it, right? It's a very, very, very major, very major idea here. How seriously we have to take what we say and what we don't say. You know, they say that... Um, I, I don't know what the source is, but a Torah source that says that, you know, it sounds like a cute idea. You go, ha, cute idea. But don't think of it as a cute idea. Think of it as a very serious idea. That there's actually two gates between our tongue, which is the instrument of speech, and the outside of our mouths. There's our teeth and our lips. In other words, there's two gates that we have to, right? Right? to stop what we might ordinarily say. So, so in other words, how, how, how seriously did Hashem take our ability or our need to control ourselves? He actually constructed us 
with two gates, not one gate, two gates, in order to stop something bad from coming out of our mouths. Right? So we have to take that very seriously. Um, so let me go into Tazria, because Tazria starts a certain way, and then it seems to take a very radical shift in terms of what it presents. It starts by talking about the period after a woman gives birth. And, and there was a state of ritual impurity that a woman would enter into where after a certain time after she gives birth, not allowed in the temple. And by the way, you should, you should know that um, men also were subject to these laws of spiritual impurity in the same way, that if a, uh, a flow came out of a, 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 a man, out of the male organ, there was also this concept. So this is not a, you know, this is not, you know, oh, you know, picking on women here. It, was, it, it applied to men also. You know, so, and then the details of the halakhas, you have to go and learn them um, uh, at another time. But just understand that this was both for men and women. But anyway, the, one of these periods, in terms of, um, for a woman, was after she gave birth. Interestingly, it says that after she gave birth to a boy, the period was um, 33 days. Okay, that's what the Torah mentions. You know, 33, I, it, it occurred to me, you know, is also lag, as in lag ba'omer. <laughs> you know, we, when we say lag ba'omer, it's lamed gimel, that means 33, right? And that's where in the omer, things turned over again. It went from sort of, so to speak, the bad to the good. And so here you see like this, how this number somehow is, is rooted into nature as well, you know, in terms of um, a change happening in, in, a, in a woman's status at this point. But anyway, I want to say something deeper than this, huh? which is, why in this Torah portion, Tazria, where we're talking about really the, 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 the bulk of Tazria is talking about um, what happens after a person speaks Lashon Hara. Why, why does it begin with the ritual state of impurity that happens after birth? What, 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 is the, what is the connection there? And it hit me that the connection is actually very profound. And again, it's very much in keeping with what we've been discussing. When one speaks, one creates. Words are the fruit of the lips. We give birth when we speak. That's a birthing process because we're creating new thoughts and new realities and new worlds. And so the idea that we can have an issue, if you will, of impurity when we speak, right? That there's this period that very, um, in in the here and now, that a woman after she actually gives birth, that there's this period of ritual impurity, right? And yet it goes on to talk about when you speak, there's this idea that if you don't speak correctly, impurity can come out of yourself and you yourself can become impure through your own birthing process of speech. And of course, this applies to men and women all across the board. And that's the bulk of what the Parsha goes on to discuss. So that connection 
That connection is very real. So now, let's go a little bit deeper still. There are certain Torah portions which are like um, twin, twin portions, if you will, meaning to say that most years we group them together and we read these two portions together on a Shabbos. Right? It's not every year, but it's most years. So Tazria and Mitzorah are these, are these twin parshas, if you will, and we're reading them together almost every single year. And they're both discussing, again, this issue of Lashon Hara, or proper speech, and the implications of it. So I was just kind of thinking about it. Tazria starts with the letter Tav, and Mitzorah starts with the letter Mem. And that spells Tam. Now, a Tam, Yaakov Avinu, is called Ish Tam, which means a pure person, right? It, it's a very high level for someone to be like a Tam. It's a level of purity. So one of the main ways that a person has to purify themselves is through their speech, right? That's a high level. But then I was thinking, but what if you upend the process? Meaning, what if you speak incorrectly? Well, if you rearrange the letters of Taf and Mem, Tam, it spells mace, which means death. And so, and so death produces its own level of impurity, right? Because we have something called Tumas Mace, which means if you are in contact with something dead, then again, you get this level of spiritual impurity and then you can't go into the temple to bring an offering until you're cleansed of this. Now with this in mind, listen to this. I'm looking at the... <clears throat> I had a special moment on Shabbos. I was in shul, they were reading the Torah and I was looking and, it, and they were talking about, um, okay, so here's part of the um, purification process is you make a solution of um, that it's got uh, hyssop, which is a plant, and cedar wood, right, from a tree, and a red thread, right, a crimson thread, and perhaps this is the source of where we wear a red thread around our wrist, I don't know, but you have this concept of, in the Torah itself, of a red thread being part of this process, and you're taking it together, and you're doing other things with it. And, and I looked at it, and I thought, huh, so this is part of the purification of someone who has um, Tsaras, who, who has spoken Lashon Hara. And um, I thought, well, th those ingredients seem similar. I said, isn't that also part of the solution for the paraduma that, that you bring in order to remove the impurity that comes from death? The hyssop, cedar wood, and, and also uh, this red thread. And, and I, I, I thought, well, let me check in the, let me check in the Torah. So I was a little disoriented. I didn't know, where is that section in the Torah? Is it before the Parsha that we're reading right now? Is it after the Parsha that we're reading? I really like had a moment of disorientation where I didn't know where to look to check. So I just grabbed a chunk of pages like this, and I just turned, and it was right there. I mean, literally, my eye went right to it. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> and it was, and it's the same. And, and again, why is it the same? Why is it the same? Because when you, when you speak, the sages say that you kill 
when you when you speak improperly, you kill three people: yourself, the listener, and the person that you're speaking about. So there is a tumas mace. There is an impurity of death that comes. There is a destruction of a world that comes because the world that I lived in before, that was a nice guy who I'm friends with. Now you said that, now I live in a brand new world where that's a lousy guy that I don't want to be friends with. That's mamish impurity of death. So doesn't it make perfect sense then that the cleansing of the Mitzorah, the one who speaks Lashon Hara, that part of that same solution, part of that same kapora, that, that atonement process, should be the same ingredients of removing the impurity of death. Of course they should overlap. And again, Tazria Mitzorah, Mem Tuf, if you reverse it, Mace, right? Mace meaning a, a, a dead person. Right? So, so I want to tell you something Kabbalistic now, which is from the Orach HaChayim, one of our greatest rabbis ever, uh, uh, from, Mor- from Morocco, but he went to Israel, lived in Israel. And um, they say that the the, the, the Baal Shem Tov was like, felt like he lived at the time of the Baal Shem Tov. They said, and the Baal Shem Tov wanted to go to Israel and never made it to Israel, but he wanted to go and to be with the Or HaChayim for Shabbos. They said that had the two of them been together, that would have been, you know, like Mashiach, basically. Like, had it happened. Um, which it didn't. But the Or HaChayim is, you know, one of our greatest, greatest, greatest um, sages. So, so he says something very, very interesting. And again, you, you begin to see, you know, these parshas on some level are very, very difficult because they're, they're very technical. They're extremely technical. And, um, but when you get into the, 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 the deeper commentaries on them, you realize how simple details are like completely like way out, you know. And, and so here's like a, an example of this type of thing. Um, so the Orchayim says the following. That, that part of the kapora, part of the atonement, that the Torah explains for cleansing the person who spoke uh, incorrectly, right? Spoke Lashon Hara, um, is that you take two birds, and the, the first bird you um, sacrifice, and the second bird you let fly away. And on a very simple level, but... Again, very meaningful level, but simple level. A bird, you know, chirps, right? It's like one of the main characteristics of a bird. And so that sort of parallels speech in an interesting way, right? And it's just, there's a certain symmetry to it, a certain um, poetry to it, if you will, that one of them is sacrificed, right? And yet, again, as part of the atonement process, the other one is allowed to go free, and to continue its life, right? So, so what the Or Chaim says is the following: that that he says that that this is on a on a on a level of sod, right? On a level of like secrets of the Torah. That 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 this is um, addressing the issue of Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David. 
So it, it, we know, um, and if you want to look it up, it's in, uh, it's in the Talmud, in Mesechta Sukkah, 52a. That's where they talk about Mashiach ben Yosef. And we know that right before Mashiach ben David comes, and when we talk about Mashiach in general, we're talking about Mashiach ben David, right? But we have this concept of Mashiach ben Yosef as well, that, and he dies in battle, okay? Um, and, and then paves the way for Mashiach ben David. So, so this bird that's sacrificed, they say that you take the, the blood from this bird, and it goes into an earthenware pitcher, okay? And it's filled with living water, and the blood goes into this water. And then, again, we're going to incorporate the, the hyssop and the, and the cedar wood and the thread later and all the rest. There are more details to this. But he's just focusing on this step right now. And he says that on a deep level, on a deep level, a person is like an earthenware jug. Remember, you're putting the blood from that first bird into this earthenware jug filled with water, right? So when we say earthenware, that's like um, uh, like a dhamma because it's made out of earth. And a person is called the adam because our bodies were initially formed from earth, okay? So this is the parallel between us being like a jug and, and that you have the jug. Now everybody knows that when we talk about water, especially Mayim Chaim, especially living water, we're talking about Torah, right? So you take this jug, which is like a person, that's filled with Torah, that's filled with living water, and you drop the blood into this bird, into this water. And, 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 and that's the step. Now listen to this again. This is really like, you know, a, a person has to be a, 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 a great spiritual holy person to to understand the Torah on this level. He's saying that we also have a tradition that Mashiach ben Yosef doesn't have to die. And he brings from the Ari that a person, it's proper for a person to pray that Mashiach ben Yosef doesn't die. And he says not only that, that one of the ways to enact the fact that he shouldn't die is that if we ourselves, who are compared to earthenware jugs, if we ourselves are filled with living water, meaning to say if we ourselves fill ourselves with Torah, then the, 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 the blood from this bird that gets sacrificed is quote-unquote caught, meaning to say it doesn't, it's not spilt. It goes to a place which is a remedy to keep Mashiach ben Yosef alive. <laughs> so in other words, the more we fill ourselves with Torah, the more Mashiach ben Yosef has this chance to survive this you know, apocalyptic battle in, in the end of days. Amazing way to understand, like, you know, you just, I just thought you, you're killing a bird and you're letting another one go and what's on the next page? You know, he's like, wait a second. Let's really get into what's going on here, you know? So this is amazing. Now, now let's talk about some of the obstacles and some of the practicalities of um, 
how to manage our speech and things like this, right? You know, because we want to make this as as uh, as, as 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 real as possible, not just to learn the um, you know the the depths of it. Um, we have to apply these things to our lives. So the Orach Chaim again says something that I found fascinating. Most families, um, thank God, not all families, but I certainly think probably most families have the situation where you have siblings that don't necessarily get along with each other. Okay? So, um, so why is that? Why is that, especially in light of the fact that the siblings who maybe don't get along with each other have very good friends outside the family? It's not like that they're incapable of getting along with people. They have very close friends. But the brother or the sister or the brother or the brother are not in that category. <laughs> So why is that why is that happening? So he gives a, a very fascinating spiritual explanation for sort of um you know dysfunctional family dynamics. Alright? So listen to this. Very, very interesting. He says that <clears throat> when two people who are not, say, blood relatives, um, are very close with each other, right? Why is that the case? Or how is that the case? Because their souls emanate from the same celestial sphere. And so when they come down into the bodies, there is an affinity between the two. So, like, have you ever heard the expression, like, you're my soul brother? Or you're my soul sister? So this is a real thing. This is the Orchaim is saying this. I don't know that he uses that that phrase. That might be a more 1970s Detroit, you know, kind of Russian. (laughs) But um, nonetheless, this is a this is a Torah idea, you know. Then he says the 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 corollary point, which is that in in that it's possible in families, not just possible, it's common that two people can be say brothers or sisters or brothers and sisters, whatever it is but their souls emanate from different celestial spheres. And then they come down, even though there's the blood tie, they're really on a deeper level like strangers. And so this is, again, a very spiritual understanding of family relationships. And now the source, which is, again, just very super brilliant, you know, or not brilliant, take that back, holy, Holy, because the way he's deriving it is not just through mere intelligence, it's higher than intelligence. The, the, the Pasuk that he derives it from, or, or he brings this teaching, is that it says that Lovin, remember who Lovin was. Lovin is one of the, the absolute villains of, of all of Torah. And they say, spiritually speaking, his, his roots, spiritually speaking, are to the snake in the Garden of Eden, and he becomes reincarnated as Bilam, who tries to curse and wipe out the whole nation, but Lovin himself tried to uproot the nation when it was just one family, right? So, but who are Lovin's daughters? Rachel and Leah, right? The mothers of the Jewish people. So it says when, it says when in the, on the, on the passage, on the verse, when it says that he's kissing them goodbye, that's like when they're finally, when Yaakov finally is able to escape Lovin, you know, with his family intact, which is amazing that when Levin is kissing his daughters goodbye and his children goodbye, right, that 
this is where he learns it. Because how can you possibly have in one family Lavin and Rachel and Leah? How can you? How does that make any sense at all? It makes no sense at all, unless you understand the spiritual dynamics behind it, right? Now, by the way, I want to just add a PS to this, and I'm not prepared to discuss this more fully now, but I just want to mention it now. The fact that Hashem brought that soul that you might be in conflict with into your family, that doesn't mean that therefore it's some divine accident or God's just trying to annoy you or whatever it is, right? There's a depth and a purpose to that as well. We're just not discussing that right now. Don't think that therefore, oh, okay, so the answer is, you know, I ignore the family members that I don't get along with and I'll just be friends with my friends, right? That, that's not the point of this. There, there's, there's, there's rectification that needs to go on there too, but we're just not discussing that now, okay? So, um, so let's, uh, let's keep on going. So I know, you know, like, uh, like at the Happy Minion, you know, where, where I daven, you, you, you have a sense that, 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 that we must, there's, there's just a sense that, you know, we're all kind of brothers and sisters there, you know? And I think it's because probably it's from the same, somehow the same celestial spheres, you know? When you, when, and when you meet someone, you know, there's a, and you feel that connection, you're just on the same wavelength. You know, it could be that what you're sensing is the fact that your souls have emanated from the same place, you know? You know, they, I heard Rav Shlomo talk about another, another perhaps way of saying this, um, which is that, there's this concept, oh, you know something? We stood next to each other at Mount Sinai. Right? That's another kind of formulation of this same concept. Right? Because remember, um, when the Jews encamped in the desert, they encamped in such a way that the encampments paralleled the way the angels are arranged in, in Shemayim, in heaven. So there was a parallel between heaven and earth between the way the Jewish people were um, positioned and, and sort of the choreography on high. And so heaven and earth came together at Mount Sinai. So who you were standing with at Mount Sinai or next to would, 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 would correlate with where your souls are connected in terms of the heavens as well. Um, so so Mitzorah Again, this is the person who spoke Lashon Hara. Comes from the word, the words they say, Motze Shemra, that that a bad bad news, bad words, or, or just bad or evil is going out of the person's mouth. Okay, so so one of the things, um, you know, there's a an old joke. It's not a very nice joke, but I'll tell it to you anyway, which is, you know. Well, maybe I'll just uh, try to apply the lessons of this class and not say the joke because it isn't a very nice joke. It, il- it illustrates a good point. <laughs> but we can just say the point without the joke. Um, so, you know, we have to trust, one of the ways that you can master your speeches, you have to trust that if you need to know something, you'll find out that information. Right? That, that God will send you that information. You know what I mean? Like, and, and, and again, don't be over-spiritual about it. Like, say, you don't say, um, you know something, um, I bought a ticket for an airplane, but I don't know which flight I booked. 
but God will inform me. <laughs> like, that would be quite a misapplication of this idea. <laughs> there are certain pieces of information that you don't really need to know, right? And so certain questions that you ask, see, you have to understand something also. If you really want to master your speech, you have to understand when you're inviting Lashon Hara. In other words, you can ask a very innocent question. Oh, um, how is our friend so-and-so? I didn't say anything bad, right? If you want to tell me all the gossip about her, that's your business, right? I was just asking how they were. You could have said fine and changed the subject, right? Mm, no, you don't let yourself off the hook so simply. You have invited that conversation with your question. And we have to be aware when, you know, we're sort of hiding behind this like false cloak of innocence. When in, when in reality, we're really, we're really creating the context for Lushen Hara to be spoken. And one of the main ways that this happens is when we ask about other people, how are they doing? Right? Now, again, if there's someone who's sick in the hospital and you want to know how they're doing, that's a proper question to ask. Don't, you have to use your brain in terms of when to apply this and when not to apply this. Right? If someone's sick in the hospital, you need to know. However, you know, if you're just making conversation about old classmates and things like that, that's a completely different category. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a fundamental, and again, we're, we're talking about practical ways to guard our speech. There's, there's a fundamental um, uh, choice that every single person has to really think about which is the following. And it will sound perhaps like a platitude, but don't dare hear this as a platitude. Which is, do I want to see what's going right in the world or in my life? Or do I want to see what's going wrong in the world and in my life? And which do I want to make my primary point of view moving forward? Because there is so much going right in our lives, even if we feel like our lives are disasters. You know, the ability to get out of bed in the morning is a triumph. It's a triumph. You know, our legs were working. I'm, I'm not so depressed that I'm actually able to start the day and get through the day and get dressed and get out of the house. My eyes are working, my ears are working, my mouth is working, my hands are working, my legs are working. We can't dare allow ourselves not to understand how much right is going on in our lives, even if we think we're in an absolute crisis. So with this in mind, listen to this teaching. I, 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 it's from a very exalted source. I don't know if it's the Zohar, the, the Sefer Yetzirah, but it's, it's like really like one of the, you know, highest, you know, holiest sources. <clears throat> to explain the blemish that someone who speaks Lashon Hara gets on their skin, it's called a nega. Okay? 
So nega is the letters nun, gimel, ayin. Nega. Okay? And um, you don't want a nega on you. Right? That's not good. That's like a real blemish, like putting it nicely. Okay. Now, listen to what our, our, our sages teach. The last letter of nega is the letter ayin. Ayin is, is, is not just a letter in the Hebrew alphabet, it's a word. And ayin means I. So now listen to this. If you move the ayin from the back of nega and you change the position of the eye, how you see something, and you put the ayin in the beginning of the word, it spells the word oneg, which means joy or bliss. So if you want to transform your reality, where are you, what are you looking at? Are you looking at what's going wrong or are you looking at what's going right? And your ability to direct your eye to the positive place is a redemptive thing. And you're the primary beneficiary of it. You know, like, ah, oh, what are you lecturing to me before? What are you beating me up for? Like, hey, let me just do, let me just do it the way I've been doing it. I got through this far in my life. We're the beneficiaries, uh, beneficiaries of it. Because when you accustom yourself to, to seeing the good, then you realize, oh, things aren't so bad. That person isn't so bad. I heard the rabbi say this morning, Rabbi Elias said something so beautiful. He said, you know something? If you, okay, so let's say you know someone and he did something wrong. And they really did do something wrong. It's not like, oh, I'm being harsh and judgmental. No, they did something wrong. You know something? For every wrong thing a person does, they're probably doing 10, 10 things right. And if you think about it, someone who you're mad at right now, Probably, it's true. They're probably doing at least 10 things right for everything they're doing wrong. And what about us? Aren't we in that category too? So what's the difference between the way you're looking at that person you're mad at and the way that you're looking at yourself most probably? We're looking at the nine things we do right. <laughs> and we go, okay, so every once in a while, you know, I don't get it right. But that person, you know, villain, <laughs> you did something wrong. <laughs> You didn't call me. You were late. You know, so where are you putting the eye in? Where are you putting your eye? And 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 this is something that you see, you know, remember, Rev Israel Salanter, the, the father of the Musser movement said that it's easier to learn all of Shas, the entire Talmud, which, you know, it takes, if you learn one page a day of the Talmud, it takes you seven years to go through the Talmud, right? So the Talmud is very, you know, it's like a mountain. He says it's, it's easier to learn all of Shas, the whole Talmud, than to correct one character flaw that you have. It's harder to correct one character flaw than to learn all of Shas, the whole Talmud. And he also says in another place, the loudest sound in the world is the sound of a bad habit being broken. Right? So, so why am I telling you this? Because 
certain people have habitualized themselves to see the bad. And it's a form of um, self-medication. It's a form of therapy um, that, 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 that people have done, um, which is that I'm miserable, but they say misery loves company. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to find out, I'm going to look at all the misery that's around me. And then when I see that everyone else is miserable, then I'm going to feel better. But then what you do is then you've habitualized yourself to begin to look for misery in other people. But then what you don't realize is, is that you then have created a path to make yourself miserable. Because now the world that you inhabit is, not only am I miserable now, but the world that I inhabit is filled with misery. All I see is misery. I thought this was going to help me. Misery loves company. It was going to make me feel good. And that's why I started to do it. But now, look what I have become. I've become a miserable person in a sea of misery. Now I'm even more miserable. It doesn't help anymore. So now I have to get out of this habit. And of course, speaking poorly about everybody and, 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 and all the rest, right? That's, that's all part of this. So, so if you want to start looking to move your eye, right? To turn a, a nega, a blemish, and move the eye into the front and turn it into oneg, to turn it into bliss. If you want to redirect your eye and to find out the nine good things that everyone's doing versus the one bad thing, this requires work. Because for most of us, this has become habitualized. And if we want to uproot this, we have to work at it and work at it and work at it and work at it and work at it. Imagine a stream that's flowing with great, great strength, right? It's like a river, right? And you want to redirect the river. How are you going to redirect the river? You're going to put like a, um, a twig in the middle of the river and you think that the water is going to bounce off the twig and go into a different direction? It's going to knock the twig right over. You want to redirect a strong flowing stream. You got to really, you got to really do a lot of work to redirect the stream. You have to respect your own entrenched habits. Because unless you respect how deeply entrenched they are, you're not going to begin to put in the proper effort that it takes to, to uproot them. These are not like, okay, so I heard a class and I, I tried and I'm back to my old ways. In fact, I, I don't even remember what the thought was that I heard in the class and now I don't even remember that I ever went to the class. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's got to be way more than that. <laughs> right? Because what's at stake? Your actual happiness. <laughs> and if you want to get a little more deep and a little more like out there, the, the whole redemption of the world only. Really, honestly, though. And, 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 you know, every person is called a world, right? Because it says if you save one person, it's like you saved the whole world. So if you save yourself, on some level, you did save the world. Okay. So, so we started off by, by, by saying that there's also this concept of Lushen Tov, which is... Um, being able to, to, to speak good. And I think for me, I know um, the, the best um, example of this that I ever experienced in my life was Rabbi Shlomo Karlobach. 
you know, what, what, what he would do is, whenever he would see you, he would greet you with, uh, he would say, holy brother, or holy sister, right? He would call you holy, right? Or like another way that he would greet people is he would look at you and say, highest you alive, right? Like, you know, like, you know, or where have you been? I haven't seen you in 2,000 years, right? Or where have you been? I haven't seen you since Mount Sinai. So you felt so good. And the way that he would talk to you and treat you is he would look at your potential and he would just address your potential. And that was an amazing way to... It's a, that's, that was like, wow, you mean that's an option in terms of the way I can relate to another person? I can just sort of not address who they are right now, but address who they could be and just have a conversation in a relationship with who they could be? And then that, you talk about how we can give birth through speech, right? And this the very amazing connections between the birthing process and speech, right? Um, you can actually birth that person into another level by through your speech. And I know that I certainly was one of the beneficiaries of the way he spoke to me because I, I just felt good. And then, and then you want to become that person who he not necessarily thinks you are, but knows you could be, right? Remember, he said at a different point, what's the definition of a good friend? It's someone who, when you're with them, you want to be a better person. He said, what's the definition of a best friend? When you're with them, you're already a better person, (laughs) right? So he was, you know, he was like the best friend to so many people. And, and, you know, it's been recorded. This, what I'm about to tell you has been, many, many, many people have said this. People would come up to, like, his daughters and family members, and they would say, they, they would come up to, say, Neshama or, or something and say, you know, I was your father's best friend. And it, he, she's heard that from so many different people. And then she's asked, like, well, how, how, long, how long did you know my father? And, 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 Oftentimes, the people would say, oh, we just met once. (laughs) Can you imagine what his influence was? So then why do they feel that way so strongly? Because he put them in touch with an aspect of themselves, which was their truest, deepest aspect, which was the truest aspect of themselves. He spoke to that part of them, uncovered it, brought it alive, and then you're like, oh, that's me? I want to be me. I want to be the real me. Right? Right? Remember, he, he would quote Rav Cook. What did Rav Cook say? What's the whole tshuva process? Right? What does it mean to, not to repent, that's how it's translated in English, which is a horrendous translation. Tshuva means to return. You want to go back to being who you really are. Right? So we have this ability to create the people around us. You know, it's interesting. It says that, the sages say that when you have students, those students are counted as your children. Now we can understand a much deeper aspect of that. Why are they your children? Because you, through the Torah learning, are elevating them and bringing about a new creation in them, which you have birthed through the power of the Torah. 
So they really are like your children. Because you yourself, through your own efforts, have become another person. A new person. So again, this is Lashon Tov. The ability to address who a person could be and to actually form a relationship with that person. Then that person then becomes excited to become that person. Okay.